I'm going to read just selected verses out of this passage. I hope you'll take time to read it on your own if you haven't already. But I just want to choose a few verses. And I'm going to begin with verse 1. And I'll direct us through the verses that we are reading as we go through, okay? John chapter 17, verse 1. And Jesus said this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now down to verse 6, verses 6 through 8. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, down to verse 23. Excuse me, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. May God bless to our understanding the reading from his holy word. Amen. After Jesus said this, he looked to heaven and he prayed. What did Jesus say? Well, it's everything that we find in the previous chapters, 13 through 16 of John. What is sometimes called the upper room discourse or sometimes Jesus' farewell message to his disciples. Jesus has told his disciples all that's going to happen in the hours to come, all that they can expect He's told them how God will lead them through it. And he closes his farewell talk for his disciples with this. In the world you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then we are told that he looks toward heaven. I'm not sure when or how it came to be that we bow our heads and we close our eyes when we pray. And that's okay to pray that way. But isn't it interesting that Jesus, it says looked toward heaven with his eyes open and his head up. And he prays. And this entire chapter, John chapter 17, is one long prayer of Jesus. To me, John chapter 17 in John's gospel is the real Lord's prayer. The real Lord's prayer. Uh, We get an insider's look at Jesus and how he prayed and what was on his heart just before he was betrayed, just before he was arrested. Now, there are a couple of other places in the Gospels where we hear Jesus pray, but they are very brief. This is extensive. When we pray our Father who art in heaven, uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, um, yes, it is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, But in reality, Jesus gave that prayer to his disciples to pray because they asked him, Lord, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. Uh, The Our Father might be better called the Disciples' Prayer. 
It is the prayer Jesus gave his disciples to lift to God. Not that Jesus wouldn't pray that way, not that Jesus didn't pray that way himself, but he gave it to his disciples. And there are many parallels between this prayer in John 17 and the Our Father, actually, if you study them. But this is the prayer of Jesus, his words that we get. You know, prayer reveals the heart. The things that are on our hearts are revealed in our prayers. What we pray is what is closest to us. What we pray is most inside of us. And in the Lord's Prayer of John 17, we hear what's on Jesus' heart. So notice what he prays. And the first thing Jesus prays is he recognizes what he has been given by the Father. Note the word gave throughout Jesus' prayer. Jesus acknowledges in this prayer that his authority, his works, his words, his glory, his disciples, all of it has been given to him by God the Father. He acknowledges none of these things were his possession to begin with. None of them are his right. They've been given to him. You know, it can be good when we pray to acknowledge what's been given to us. Um, it's healthy to realize that what has been given to us comes only by God's rich grace, that we don't own it. It keeps us from possessiveness. It protects us from a sense of entitlement. Notice what God gives to us, and that's the first thing Jesus prays. Second thing Jesus prays is for protection for his disciples. Verse 15, notice it. Jesus prays, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Jesus does not pray for escape or separation for his disciples. Followers of Jesus live in the same wrecked, crazy, upside-down world that everybody else does. What Jesus prays for is protection from Satan. The prayer of verse 15 is a prayer that uh, I have prayed for my own children. I have used this to pray for my own three daughters. I want them to know Christ. I want them to live for Christ. I want them to be witnesses to Christ in the real world with all its craziness and uneasiness and uncertainty and dangers. We've just taken our second daughter to college. There are things to be fearful about. There are things to be worried about whenever our children are no longer with us, right? But as they are in this world, I pray for God to protect them. That doesn't mean that their lives will be pain-free or problem-free by any means. No one has a problem-free, pain-free life. But I have prayed that whatever the world throws at them, that in that they will be in the absolute grasp of their Heavenly Father and always in the hold of God. And besides, He can protect them much better than I can. Third thing Jesus prays for his disciples is the full measure of his joy. In verse 13, he says, Father, I I pray this so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus has spoken of his joy previously on this night several times in the farewell discourse. He mentions it. Christian joy is not the chintzy happiness that this world knows that is totally dependent on comfort or money or vacations, or those things. The joy of Christ is the joy that the world cannot take away. It is independent of the circumstances of life. 
It endures and lasts through thick and thin, through good and bad, through what is easy and through what is hard. Remember in chapter 16, we heard Jesus tell his disciples, no one will take their joy away from them. And Jesus prays that for them. Fourth, Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify the disciples. Now, sanctify is kind of a churchy, big-sounding word, but it just means to be different. It means to be set apart for a sacred use. Literally, it comes from the same word, to be made holy. And it doesn't mean moral perfection. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That's not what sanctify means. It does mean that we're dedicated and that we will be devoted to God. And part of that is being given the qualities that we need to be who, to be what God wants us to be. And that's why we are sanctified. We are made different by the truth. Jesus prays, Father, your word is the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. The more we let the word of the Lord into our lives, speak to our lives, form our lives, the more different we become from the world, the more sacred we become to God. But by far and away, the biggest thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer, and the thing I really want to focus on this morning, is for the unity of all believers. The unity of all believers. Jesus prays not only for his disciples, but then he also prays for those who believe in them through their message, the message of the disciples. And that is us. And it's all those who have believed because those first 11 were faithful and they got about proclaiming the message of the gospel. We have heard the message of Christ. We have accepted the gospel. We have believed it. And the overwhelming prayer of Jesus for those original 11 and for all those followers who subsequently came is unity. Jesus asks the Father that they may be one as we are one. And this prayer for oneness is repeated several times by Jesus. It is at the core of the prayer of chapter 17. It is at the core. Jesus does not pray for partial oneness. He prays for complete oneness. And it is a oneness that is the same oneness as the Son has with the Father. Now think about that. Boy, that's tight. That is close. Jesus prays that the unity of all believers would be the same as the Son enjoys with the Father and that the Father has with the Son. And he says the reason for this oneness is, it's in his prayer, the reason for this oneness is so that the world may believe that you have sent me and to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The reason Jesus prays for unity amidst the believers is evangelistic. So that the world may see and believe and so that the world may know it is loved. It is loved by God. The unity of Christians is to be noticed. It's to have an effect on all those who do not believe. It is to be visible to a watching world so that people will understand Jesus has come from God and that the Father loves them with the same love with which he loves Jesus. People are supposed to figure out about God and his love for them by looking at Christians. And that is what Jesus prays, the last thing he prays before he goes to the cross. That was what was on his heart. 
Well, what does the watching world see? You know, back in my uh, zealous, hot-blooded days of early adulthood, I loved the challenge of answering anybody who had a challenge about the Christian faith. And I had kind of this evangelistic zeal and liked to take on people who had challenges about faith. I've since calmed down, and I've realized you can't argue, and you can't have all the right answers as much as you would want to, and that things like love and grace and consistency of life, you know, are just as important. And besides, some people, most people can't be argued into belief anyway. Nevertheless, one of the questions that I think that was always hard for me, is still hard for me, difficult to answer is this. Why are there so many churches in Christianity? Why are there so many churches? I mean, suppose you had no church background. Just suppose you knew nothing, but you had, you had come to faith in Christ, and you wanted to worship Him, and you were hungry and thirsty to learn about Him, and you say, well, I'm going to go to church, because I think that's where people go who, who worship Jesus. Where would you go? Where would you start? There's so many. How would you know? You got Presbyterian, you got Lutheran, we got Baptist. Oh, we got Baptists. We got the American Baptist Association. We have the uh, American Baptist churches in the USA. We have the Baptist General Conference. We have the Conservative Baptist Association of America. We have the Independent Baptist Fellowship of North America, the original Free Will Baptist Convention, and the United American Free Will Baptist Church, to name just a few. In fact, there are over 50 Baptists uh, fellowships, organizations, just on this continent alone. Now, lest you think Presbyterians are any less divided, there are at least eight, and then I lost count, different Presbyterian affiliations churches in the United States. And there are non-denominational churches, and then there are non-denominational churches who are really denominations, practically speaking, even though they don't know it. And then there are Anglican, and there's Methodist, and there's Free Methodist, and there's Holiness, and Pentecostal, and Apostolic, and Quaker churches, and there are churches that meet in cathedrals, and they meet in warehouses, and in gyms, and in houses, and in buildings like this. Why so many? And aren't we all one? Huh? I find this problematic for what it says about the unity of Christians. Why so many churches? Why so many divisions? Well, okay, churches choose to run themselves differently. Um, churches have different styles of worship. Yeah, you know, churches have different personalities. Some churches like to rock and roll. Some churches like to be quiet and contemplative. Some churches like to worship from the screens. Other churches, they give you a book and you worship from there. Nothing wrong with that. That's okay. Originally in this country, churches were often associated with an ethnicity or geography from where you came from in the, in the old country. And as people came to the United States, they organized themselves um, based on those from their original homes. Some churches just tend to emphasize different things, and as long as these are the lesser and the minor things, that's fine. There's room for freedom for interpretation in, in certain things in, in the faith and how we want to be a church, no doubt about it. 
there's no real problem with any of that. I mean, uniformity is not unity. Uniformity is not unity. We could all dress the same way. We could worship the same way. Everybody with all churches and, and, and all believe the same things and, and go through the same motions and have the same worship services and not be unified. We could do all those things and still not be unified. I mean, the church is a living organism with the life of Jesus flowing through us and the Holy Spirit going through us. It is never static, so there is always going to be a certain diversity. And that is good. And I love the diversity of the body of Christ. I really do. People can, I mean, people can have different perspectives and personalities in our families, right? And yet we can still be a unified family. Is that true in your families? Different people, different things, but we're still a family. But the fact remains that the larger church of Jesus Christ is divided, often by the very things that should unite us. I mean, there are churches that only allow their members to have communion. I mean, I, go, I could go to that church, and I'm a Christian. I, I really am. I'm a Christian. I am. And I'm an ordained minister of the gospel, and yet I go to that church. They would not let me take communion. And there are churches that say, you know what, if you're going to be baptized, it's only in this church and in our way. And there are churches that say, unless you have this Bible and this translation and you read that, we don't want you. You're not part of us. What does the Christian church look like to the world? I mean, if we truly hold to what Paul writes in Ephesians, what we affirmed together earlier, when he said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the body of peace. There's one body, and there's one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that you were called. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who was over all and through all and in all. If that's true, then how should Christians live? I mean, I don't care what type of Christian... You want to call yourself, you can call yourself mainline, you can call yourself Protestant or Roman Catholic or um, born again or high church or low church. If you can say that there is one God, that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God from Him who died on the cross, who rose again from the dead, and who you trust in solely for the forgiveness of your sins and that He is Lord of all, I don't care what name is on your church sign. I'm in fellowship with you as a believer and part of the body of Christ. I'm in unity with you. That's, that's the way I feel about it. That's the way I think it is. We may worship in different places. We may sing different songs. We may have different traditions. Those aren't the point. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, is the point, And he is what unifies us. Then why are we Presbyterian? Well, I like to say this. And I mean it. I like to say Christian is what we are. Presbyterian is just how we do it. Christian is what we are. Presbyterian is just how we do it. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I lead a Presbyterian congregation. We're just part of the bigger family. I don't even agree with everything Presbyterian some days. It's my tradition. It's not my salvation. There are different styles, there's different ways of being a church. Unity can have great diversity. 
My grandmother, who's now gone to be with the Lord, she used to make quilts called crazy quilts. This is one of them. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but my grandmother used to take different pieces of cloth, old dresses, shirts, ties, blankets, whatever she could find, some from the family, and she would cut them up in different pieces and make this, what was called a crazy quilt. She'd make a border and put all the pieces together, different textures, different colors, different uh, shapes, and she would make one unified piece out of all the different parts. Called it a crazy quilt. I think you know why. You know, the church, the people of Jesus Christ can look a little crazy sometimes. Different shapes, sizes, colors, textures. Um, you know, we don't all look the same. We don't all uh, act the same. And Jesus didn't pray. You know, his prayer was not, make them perfect, Lord. He didn't say, you know, make them all look alike. He didn't pray uh, for everyone to speak the same language or even to worship in the same way. Our Lord prayed, just would you make them one? Father, as you and I are one, would you do that? Part of the power of the gospel, I think, is that it brings people together who would otherwise, we'd have nothing in common. Or as C.S. Lewis said, God puts us alongside people in church who may be the very selection of neighbors we've been avoiding all week. I mean, we've got Republicans sitting next to Democrats. There's doctors sitting next to um, truck drivers who are sitting next to stay-at-home moms. And we, have, we can have youth in church who, with, with body piercings and tattoos sitting next to the staid, proper senior citizen. And I don't know, I suppose it could happen. We, we might have a BYU fan here somewhere in what I guess is a predominantly youth congregation. I don't know that for a fact, but I suppose it could happen. We have people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and educational and racial backgrounds. And we're all singing, we're all serving together because we share the same faith in Christ. Maybe one of the reasons that Jesus prayed for all of us to be one, just as he is one with the Father, is because it is only the power of God that can make this happen. There's just no other way. It's something that has to be prayed for. C.K. Barrett uh, wrote one of the most influential commentaries on John. I've been reading his commentary. He's a great Bible scholar. And he said that the unity of the church is a supernatural fact which can only be explained as a result of a supernatural cause. Maybe it is something we should be praying for. And maybe we should not only pray for it, maybe we should live for it. How can I contribute to the unity of the body of Christ wherever it's found? Because whenever different churches gather together for worship, whenever pastors of different traditions come together to pray and support one another, whenever Christians of different varieties share in service or a missionary project together, whenever youth groups from different churches come together for an event, whenever people who work together somewhere acknowledge their shared faith in Christ, though they may be from different parts of the family, and these things do happen, by the way, there, in those places, at that time, 
the prayer of Jesus is being answered. When believers are united in Christ, the gospel exerts a power and an influence over the entire world. Jesus prayed for oneness for his people. That was on his heart before the cross. Are you helping Jesus answer his prayer? If he prayed for it, boy, then I want to help answer that prayer. I want to be a part of his answer. Our Lord prayed for oneness. He prayed for oneness because God's holy strategy, his holy strategy for the whole world is for his followers to be placed in the world and to live out the love, to live out the love of Jesus Christ together. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus wants to inhabit us. He wants his radical, redeeming love to be inside of us. And next Sunday, we begin the home stretch of John's gospel. And we're about to discover the full meaning of that costly love. Let's pray. Gracious God and Almighty Father, right now we pray that you would make your people in this church, in this city, in this state, in this nation, on all seven continents, that you would make us one. That you would dissolve suspicions and pride and disagreements on the much lesser things. That you would build trust and humility and oneness. We pray for Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church. We pray for Risen Life Church and our Savior Lutheran Church and the Chin Christian Church and the Chinese Christian Church and Holiday Church of Christ and Christ Methodist Church and other neighboring churches that they would be one with you and we would be one with each other even though in different places. We pray that whatever barriers are in the way of the unity that you desire, that those would be dissolved so that the world may know that Jesus is the Christ and that the world may know the love that you have for all. Lead us to oneness. Amen.